Hey there, Pastor Mark here. It's our prayer that this message would encourage and equip you in your relationship with Jesus. We're able to provide this content due to the joyful generosity of our financial partners. And if you'd be willing to join that tribe and help get some sermons like this around the world, you can donate at harvestbaptist.info slash give. God bless. Um, I'm really though excited about this morning. And I have been for some time. I'm so excited, believe it or not, that I woke up this morning before my alarm clock and my brain turned on. I started thinking about the sermon. Now, that may not mean much to you, but I'm a night owl, okay? I did roll over and go back to sleep and then the alarm clock went off. But I, I was like, I was, I was chomping at the bit even in, in the early morning hours and just excited to dive into this particular uh, sermon series because I really believe that there's, there's a lot of concepts here that are going to shape our church uh, probably for years to come. I, I think that there's enough in this series that we'll, we'll work through it but I think it's going to be over the next two or three years that will it'll really be the work of trying to implement it and, uh, and, and flesh it out in a practical way. And for this season in the life of our church, I just think it'll be very good medicine. I think it'll grow us. I think it'll grow you personally. At least it's my hope and prayer that it will. And we're going we're gonna to learn some things together. We're going to unlearn some things together. And uh, hopefully we will do some things together because the title is Practicing the Practices, and that's meant to be very action-oriented, right? Uh, the title is not the book of Revelation, where we're just learning what Revelation says. The title is meant to intimate that there are some things that we should be practicing and doing and working out in very practical ways in our Christian lives. And today I want to stay at 30,000 feet. I'll probably stay at 30,000 feet next week as well and just give you some survey and kind of lay a foundation and get the ground under us very firm and for us to understand why we would even be talking about practicing the practices. What are the practices? How does that fit into our life in Jesus? And I want to start today with a game. So I don't play many games when I'm giving you a sermon, but today we're going to. The game is called Jesus Is. Okay, here's how it goes. I'm going to say Jesus is, and after I follow is, I'm going to give you a descriptor, and it will be your job to respond with true or false. Right? Very simple game. So, for example, if I said Jesus is Messiah, you would say true. If I said Jesus is a lunatic, you would say false, right? Okay, that's how this goes. So, let's play the game. You ready? Okay, you didn't, you didn't sound like it, but we're going to give it a shot anyway. Here we go. Jesus is the Son of God. Oh, man, you guys were ready. You're a great class, okay? Jesus is the Lamb of God. Very good. Jesus is a liar. A plus, you're acing this test. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is a rabbi. I wanted to see what happened there. It went exactly how I, how I thought it would. Because there is this, uh, there's this, I don't know what to say on that one, right? There was this hesitation in many of you of like, do I say true? Do I say false? I heard some truths and saw some of that. I saw some of this, you know. Jesus is a lot of things, okay? Jesus is our Savior. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of Man. Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is the Lamb of God. Jesus is many things. But how the first century disciples 
would have seen Jesus was, would have been that of a rabbi, that of a teacher. And I'm not making that up. Like, I, I don't think that. I know that. Because if you read the, the Gospels, when Jesus shows up, they start to call him stuff, right? And you have moments where they're like, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. But that's not the normal title. The normal title for Jesus when he shows up is that of rabbi. You see that a lot? Teacher, master, right? You see those three together a lot, all intimating the same thing, that Jesus is, in fact, a teacher and a rabbi. Now, this, this is important because teachers, rabbis, masters had followers. They had disciples, right? When you see, like, the disciples of Jesus, and when we say, like, we should make disciples or we should do discipleship, that's very Christian lingo in the church, we're borrowing from concepts that were very prevalent in the first century, right? A rabbi had disciples. That what, Jesus didn't like make up discipleship. It's not like disciples was a new term that no one knew what it meant and he had this whole new program that no one had ever heard of before. It's something that when we look at what does it mean for us to be a follower of Jesus, which we should be, what are we doing? We're using language of Jesus is our master. Jesus is our Lord. Jesus is the teacher. Jesus is a rabbi. Jesus is the one that we're looking to. In the same way that we would say Jesus was a man, but he was much more than a man. He was the God man. Or Jesus was a prophet, but he was much more than a prophet. Jesus was a king, but he was the king of kings. You could say Jesus was a teacher, but he was the master teacher. He was, he was the best, right? And for us as a church, I think this is especially potent, right? Because our whole like mission is to make mature followers of Jesus. We want mature followers of Jesus. Well, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? And I think that's a great question because it means a lot of things. But what did it mean for the early followers of Jesus? How did they go about following him? And what did that look like for them? And I think if we can understand that, not just historically, although historically, but also biblically, then we can really have some, some cues, some really salient ideas on what it would mean for us to be a follower or a disciple of Jesus as well. So I'm going to give you a history lesson today. It's not going to be a quick history lesson. It's going to be a long one, a slow one. It's going to meander over the whole course of the sermon. And hopefully this will be helpful. If you like history and you're the person who comes to, to church and you have your notes and you have your pen or you got your file on your phone and you're ready to put the cross-references and you're ready to put the ideas and you're ready to take a page, then you are going to love today. If you're the person that comes to church and you're like, forget about all that, just yell at me. Just step on my toes and tell me what to do. You're not going to love today so much, but you need it, okay? It's going to be good medicine and you need to understand what's happening here. So Jesus doesn't invent discipleship, right? There were, there were rabbis and masters and teachers who had disciples. Before Jesus, there were ones after Jesus. And it really played off of the education system in the Jewish culture. So there's kind of three levels of education in the Jewish culture. Uh, one was, if you could translate it as house of the book, it was kind of like grade school. It's, you'd think maybe first grade to sixth grade sort of thing, where you would go and you would learn uh, how to read, how to write, basic arithmetic, some of those sorts of things. It was for boys and girls. But once you hit about sixth grade, age 12, um, the vast majority of people were done. That was it. 
And it was great because it produced a society where people could, uh, they could read and they could write, those sorts of things, but you were done. If you were 12 and you were a girl, you were getting close to here comes the dowry and you're going to be married off time. Like, it's crazy for us to think in our culture, but like you were not too far from marriage and birthing children and that was in your, in your not too distant future. If you were a young man, generally you were going to go apprentice under your dad or maybe your grandpa or something like that. And you were gonna learn how to be a carpenter. Or you were going to learn how to be a farmer, or how to be a fisherman, whatever it may be. There were some students that were really good. They just had a knack for it. And they actually could be upgraded into level two. This was basically uh, middle school. Think maybe ages 12 to, uh, to 15. And they actually went to the house of learning is what it was called. It normally would be a little school off of the local synagogue. In the same way that we have a school that is associated with our church and off of our church, uh, there was the synagogue where you would go and you would learn, you would worship, you would have the, the reading of, of the Torah, but you would also have off to the side this little place where there was a dedicated paid instructor that was going to take uh, young men and was going to instruct them. If you were like the best of the best of the best, if you were the valid Victorian, you may have an opportunity to become a disciple, level three. You may have an opportunity to sit under a rabbi and be a, a part of his Talmudin. It was a group of disciples that would follow them around. And different rabbis had different size of, sizes of groups, but you would be invited in. And this was hard. It was hard. It'd be like the equivalent of you getting an acceptance letter to maybe Princeton or Yale or something like that. Like it was not easy to be accepted into this. You would be interviewed and grilled and you would have been expected to not have only memorized the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, but to have known so much but if a rabbi wanted you as part of his group, part of his disciples, he would give you an invitation, and it didn't come in the mail via a letter, but he would say something to the tune of, follow me. And then you could be part of his Talmudin. You could be part of his group. Now, that's a really important idea because Jesus is viewed by his disciples as a teacher and how does he get his disciples, right? He comes to them and he gives them a call. He gives them the follow me, right? If you read in Matthew chapter number four, verse number 18, Jesus is walking by the Sea of Galilee and he saw two brethren, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother. They're casting a net into the sea for their fishers. And he said unto them, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. And they straightway, they left their nets and they followed him. You ever think about that? Like what possessed these guys mid-job in the family business? Like, I don't know, was there an aura about Jesus? Was there something special that they just like lay down their stuff and they follow him? Well, Jesus is, is from the north, so his legend may have been growing a little bit by this point. Legend's probably a bad word, his reputation. And these guys somehow knew or intuited that this is a rabbi and I have just been invited and what an honor, what a privilege. I mean, the family would have taken so much pride that I could be part of a group of disciples. I could apprentice under a rabbi. Like, I'm in. Like, 
I never thought I was gonna get an invitation like this. I never thought there'd be an opportunity to learn like this. I'm all in, right? And Jesus extends these invitations over and over, many of whom drop everything and join him, some of whom are reluctant, and he always chastises those people when he says, follow me, and they're like, well, I gotta go bury my daddy first. And their burial system, whole other sermon, but was very different than ours, took months, not a week. And Jesus is like, let the dead bury their dead. Like, no, you're in or you're out. Like, come all in or not, right? Or someone comes to Jesus, Jesus, I want to follow you. I'm a great guy. I've kept all the law. Look, I, look from, a, from a little kid. I mean, I've been doing a great job. And Jesus says, well, you got a lot of money, and I don't think you're willing to give that to the poor yet. Jesus would oftentimes say, you want to be my disciple? Well, take up your cross and follow me, right? The cost was high. Like, it was an all-in thing. You, you didn't tinker with discipleship. There was no add-on. It wasn't part of your life. Like, it was, it was part and parcel of who you were if you were going to be a disciple. And Jesus extends these calls to people, and he gets disciples. He gets followers, people who have hitched their wagon to him. And then there is this process, historically and biblically, that's played out where a rabbi would seek to make disciples, would seek to shape them, right? And the process uh, really was about this simple. You wanted, here's the path of discipleship. You wanted to be with your master and you wanted to be like your master. Everything that happened kind of was, was in those two realms. You wanted to be with him, like it was 24 seven. It was not, I show up, for schooling at 8 a.m., I check out at three, I have the weekends to myself. No, you lived with him. You traveled with him. You ate with him. You slept where he slept. You, you, did, you did everything together. Like you were a group and you weren't going to go be taking long breaks. Like you, you lived with him. You were with your master all the time, which has such potent ideas and there'll be a whole nother sermon on this coming eventually. But suffice it to say, that hasn't changed for the followers of Jesus. I know that we are 21st century, not first, first century. I get it. I understand that you're not leaving your jobs to follow Jesus around physically. But the idea that being a follower of Jesus would include you wanting to be with Jesus is still as true as ever. The idea of you wanting to, to enjoy and commune with the spirit of Jesus to have the presence of God in your life, like on an ongoing continual basis, is not a Pentecostal idea, like it's a biblical idea. This is why when Jesus left and was like, I'm not gonna be with you anymore. And the disciples would have naturally been like, this is gonna be bad. Like, how do we be a disciple without you? He said, but, I'm going to give you my spirit. I'm going to still be with you. I am leaving, but I am staying. My presence will go with you. I will be with you always, lo, even until the end of the world, amen, right? Like that was so important. And it's so important for us to realize that you can't really be a disciple without an environment of his presence, without wanting to walk with him and talk with him and commune with him. And I don't mean leave your job and go into ministry to, to really walk with Jesus. I mean, in whatever you do, like as you're mowing the lawn, know that God is there and with you and that you can commune with him even in those moments. As you are riding the exercise bike, as you are commuting to work, 
as you are doing monotonous typing in the database numbers or whatever it is, like you can have the presence of God with you. I heard one pastor years ago, I was like in junior high, and I never forgot this. He said, it's kind of like getting God on the line early in the morning and just shouldering the phone all day. And I know that we don't shoulder the phone much anymore because we have AirPods and all those sorts of things. But you get them on the line and you keep them on the line and you go about your, your, your business, but he's still on the line with you all day long. You're practicing his presence. But you not only wanted to be with your master, you wanted to be like your master. And this came kind of through two big veins. You absorbed his teaching and you practiced his practices. Now you can probably guess where this is going based off the title of the series. You want, your, your master had a body of truth for the way life should go and the good life that you could live, which Jesus certainly had. And you wanted to absorb that. You wanted to learn that. You wanted to take that in. So much so that you wanted to be able to parrot that back to anyone else. That, that wanted to be like just sunk into you. You wanted to, to steep your mind in his teachings. But you also wanted to practice what he did. It was more than just information transfer, way more. He was going to model for you what to do. So much so like you wanted to be a carbon copy of your master. You wanted to talk like he talked. You wanted to present the same truths he presented. You wanted to be able to do what he did. You wanted to be able to oftentimes dress like him, have the same tone of voice perhaps or intonations. or Like you wanted to become just like him. That was, that was the goal. And it's with these two ideas in mind that you can see the path of discipleship and as it unfolds throughout the course of the Gospels, right? I'll give you a couple examples of this. But Matthew 4, Jesus says, I need some disciples. Hey, follow me. We're in. So what do they do? They start to live with him. They leave their nets. They do follow him. They're with him, right? And what happens next? Well, if you, if you read the gospel accounts, he gets his disciples and then he starts to teach. Matthew 5, you turn the chapter. What happens in Matthew chapter number 5? You may have never thought of it in this, in this way, but he begins to download onto, him, onto them his teaching. And seeing the multitudes, Jesus went up into a mountain. And when he was set, so there's the multitudes, but then his disciples came unto him. So get it? Jesus, what we would call maybe the orchestra section or the front rows, disciples, then multitudes. And he opened his mouth and he taught them. And he said, and I'm not going to read it to you because it's three chapters long, right? He said the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter number five and Matthew chapter number six and Matthew chapter number seven, he says some things that would have been like, that's how you do life? What? Like, I love my neighbor? Like, yeah, I pray and I fast and I give alms and I'm generous. I know that well, yeah, I do it in secret. You mean you want me to like go do this but not tell anybody, not Instagram it or put it on a reel or like tell someone that like I was, man, I was at the soup kitchen, I was serving some people, I'm real good. Like you just want me to do it in secret? Like he starts to tell them this stuff, right? And give them his teaching. That would have been so standard. And as you read the gospels, what do you see? Teaching after teaching after teaching after teaching. Parable after parable after parable after parable. Why? Because they were a part of a Talmudine. They were... They were the disciples, and he was the teacher, he was the master. 
And not only that, they begin to practice his practices. So some of it was like, I'm going to do this and you help me. I'm going to feed 5,000 people and you go serve, you go help, you go pass the baskets out, right? Some of it was do exactly like me, be a carbon copy. Remember when Jesus washed the feet of his disciples? That would have been so category busting for the disciples because you were with your master, but you served your master. That's how it worked. You paved the way. You ran ahead and made sure the hotel room was squared away and the air conditioning was turned on. I know they don't have air conditioning, but you get it. You made sure that the food was bought. You made sure the food was prepared. You made sure the clothes were ironed. Like, you served him. And for him to get down and to wash their feet was unthinkable. But then he tells them, literally, for I have given you an example that you should do as I've done unto you. Right? Like, I'm doing this and I want you to model it. I want, you, I want you to take my practice and I want you to practice it. I want you to serve some people. I want you to put them first. And he has this whole teaching surrounding this. But the point is that there was a teaching on the first being last. There was a teaching on don't elevate yourself and look for status, but be humble. But then there was this practice and Jesus would help them uh, put that into their lives. Think even prayer. I'm not going to read it for sake of time, but it's in your, in your outline. Matthew chapter number 26. Jesus goes into the garden. It's the night he is arrested. Judas has already slipped off, so the discipleship group has whittled from 12 to 11. And what does he do in the garden? He takes his disciples. He says, guys, I'm going to go pray. And this is like the end. No, he's like, watch him pray with me. Like, I'm going to go embark on what some would call a spiritual discipline. I'm going to go pray and have time. I want you to do this. But he tells them, I'm going to leave you here, and I'm going to go off a ways. I'm going to go a stone's throw, right? But he leaves eight of them there, and he picks three, and he says, Peter, James, and John, come with me. I want you to be closer, presumably close enough to where they could hear him. And I want you to come close with me. And he leaves him there and he goes just a little bit further. He goes another 10 feet and he begins to pray and he prays. And then he wakes up, he doesn't wake up. He looks up and he finds what, what happens. You know the story, they're sleeping. He's like, can't you pray with me for an hour? Look, I'm praying, I want you to pray with me. I want you to be like me. I want you to be a carbon copy of me. I want you to practice my practices, do this together. And he goes back to praying, they fall asleep again and eventually he throws his hands up. We know the story and he... He's a little bit frustrated and he just goes back to praying. But what is happening in that moment? You can't read that moment divorced from the context of Jesus, the, the rabbi teacher who has disciples under him that he's trying to teach them and he's trying to train them. He's trying to do both. It's more than just listen to my teaching. There's something that's very hands-on and very practical. Now, here's the point of this sermon series. I am, throughout the course of this fall, looking through the Gospels, and I already have quite a few selected, I'm looking at where is it that Jesus taught, not only did he teach, he taught that we should practice, and not only did he teach and teach that we should practice, but then he modeled it. Now, you may think, like, that's, isn't that like all of Jesus' teaching? Didn't he walk the walk and talk the talk? Yes, he walked the walk and talked the talk. But when you apply those three filters to the Gospels, you actually distill it down a bit, like a lot. If you apply the filter of, okay, number one, 
Jesus not just did this, but he taught that we should do this. That starts to eliminate stuff, right? Because there's certain things that Jesus taught on, but he never told us to do, and he didn't expect us to do, i.e. the cross, right? Jesus had teaching on this temple is going to be torn down, and three days later it's going to be raised up again. And this he spake, signifying the death by which he would die and his resurrection. But he never says, so you do that too, guys. That's, that's never it. There is a, you're going to have to pay the price for sure, but Jesus had certain God jobs that were his to do and his to do alone. Right? He never tells us, you go atone for the sins of the world. You be a ransom for many. No, that's his job. He taught about it a lot. He did it, but he never says that we should atone for the sins of the world. Do you get that? So that starts to filter out some of it. There are also other things that Jesus taught on, but he never modeled. So for example, Jesus taught on divorce. There's a, there's a lot of uh, different perspectives on what actually the Bible says on divorce, and I don't want to open up a whole can of worms and give you a sermon on it today, but let's suffice it to say that Jesus said, don't go divorce each other willy-nilly, okay? I think, I think we could all agree on that. Jesus never modeled that. He was never married. It wasn't a practice that you see him do. He just, he just had a teaching on it. There are other things that he said that we should do, and he did, but they're not practices. So Jesus said, be baptized. Jesus himself was baptized, but that's not a practice. That's an event. You don't get baptized week after week. You don't get baptized month after month. You don't get baptized year after year. If you've never been baptized uh, as an adult for yourself, like made a choice that I want to follow Jesus in this way, I would certainly recommend it. We have someone being baptized after the service. I'm super excited about it. But that's not a practice. So you get it? You get the point? What I'm looking for is... This is a practice, this is something Jesus taught on, and this is something that he modeled. To give you an example of what these would look like, you would find things like prayer, generosity, fasting, evangelism, most specifically, and I'm really excited about this when we get there, is the idea of eating and drinking with people far from God in an effort to actually share the gospel with them. Serving others, solitude and silence, Uh, absorbing the scriptures. All of these are things that Jesus did and he taught that we should do. And all of this put together made discipleship. So let's review quickly. There was this path of discipleship that you really could probably boil down to about the simple. You wanted to be with your master and you wanted to be like your master and you wanted to be like him by absorbing his teaching and by practicing his practices. That's how it worked. All of this pointed to a goal. There was a goal that you as a disciple would one day accomplish discipleship. It wasn't like a, you weren't under your rabbi like shoulder to shoulder with him for your life. There was a graduation ceremony of sorts. Eventually there'd be a time where you would have learned his teaching enough and you would have practiced his, his ways enough that he would look at you and he would say something to the tune of, hey buddy, come here. I believe in you, it's your turn, I am sending you, so you go make disciples. may not have been those exact words, but it was something to that tune. Of I am now turning you loose as a replica of me to go out into the world and produce other replicas of me. That's how how discipleship went. And if you follow the course of the gospels, you eventually get 
not only to the moment where Jesus invited them to be disciples, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men, which is more than a cheesy pun. The idea of, of fishing for men is an idiom that you would capture the hearts and the minds and the imagination of people and that you would actually be able to, 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 to pull them in. But you get to this moment at the end of the Gospels, if you would look at it with me in Matthew chapter number 28. I'm sorry and not sorry for giving you a bunch of different references today. <clears throat> Here's the end of Matthew's Gospel. I've invited you in. Now you're my follower. I am teaching you. I am training you. You are with me. And you get to this moment post-resurrection. The 11 disciples went away into Galilee into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when, he saw him, when they saw him, they worshiped him. Some, they still doubted. But Jesus came and he spake unto them and he said, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. So go, go ye therefore, teach all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Teach them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world, amen. What is happening? The commissioning is happening. The graduation from discipleship is happening where they are still his disciples, but now they are going out on their own. So the goal was eventually you would be able to do as he did. That you would get to the point where I have been with him and I, I now look like him. I act like him. I'm the carbon copy of him. So now whatever my, whatever my rabbi was on about, that's now what I'm on about. Whatever his mission was, that's what my mission is. Once again, a whole other sermon. But we know what the mission of Jesus was, right? The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. The, the, the Son of Man came not into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved, right? So here is in a nutshell what a follower of Jesus would take away in the 21st century from the first century followers of Jesus. In a nutshell, and I'm so thankful for some of the work of, and I, I put some references in your, in your outline today of, of Dallas Willard and um, even some works from Francis Chan or John Mark Comer who have, who have really delved into this. None of those guys I would agree with on everything, but have, have really done a great job of looking at spiritual formation and how it was in the first century and the lessons that the modern church can take from it, which I really appreciate. And it would look like this. A follower of Jesus then and now would say, I want to be with Jesus. And I want to be like Jesus. And that's not going to happen by accident. I need to absorb his truth. And there's some things he did that I need to do. There are some spiritual disciplines and some formation in my life that I need to work out and practice and, and put into play in my life. And I'm doing all of this so that I can do as he did, so that I can be about what he was about, so that I can be his agent. I can be, in the words of the Bible, his ambassador, so that I can not be the one who is the ultimate reconciler, who takes God and man and puts them back together, but I can be his agent in the world to try to reconcile God to man. That's what being a follower of Jesus would look like. And while there's four or five components that I would love to zero in on, my goal is to zero in on that one specific, let's practice the practices. And here's why. This is the one that the American church, by and large, stinks at. <laughs> and I don't know that we're any exception to that. 
We are good at absorbing this teaching, and I'm grateful for that. For the record, I'm all in. I'm all in on teaching. I'm all in on preaching. I'm all in on doctrine. I'm all in on studying and learning. I'm all in. But not to the exclusion of the others. If you study and you nerd out and your brain grows, but you never spend time with Jesus, and you never walk with him and talk with him and commune with him, and invite his spirit to guide your day, mm, you miss something. If you get all this information and you write it all down and you take notes and you read books and you listen to sermons and you come every Sunday and you hear all this, but you never start to work out in a tangible way on Monday and, and Tuesday and Wednesday and Friday, like actual spiritual formation and disciplines into your life, then you're going to really short circuit like your Christian walk. I am for information transfer, but I understand that information transfer alone is not going to lead to transformation. Like you're going to need more than that. You're going to need to be like Jesus. You're going to need to, to work at a prayer life and to start to fast, even though it's uncomfortable and it's not fun and it feels like you're killing your body. Like th there's a point to all of that. You're going to need to learn to give, even though it hurts and it doesn't make sense for your budget. And all of those things you have to work at, you have to practice. And I wanna try to do my best to help us take some of these and make them practical over the course of a few months probably honestly over the course of a few years and to work them into the life of our church so that we can be more like Jesus. That's the point. So let me give you three notes and I'll, I'll be done. Note number one is all of this that I just mentioned happened in community. So the, a, a, a rabbi wasn't a tutor, okay? <laughs> he wasn't someone that you paid to go one-on-one -on -one with and help you on a personal, it was, it was communal. Were there one-on-one -on -one sessions off to the side? Yeah, sure there were. Or were there you three come with me and I'm gonna leave the group? Yeah, all that happened. But it was a very communal thing. You were together, learning together, growing together. And I think it would be fair to say that the church is designed to be a place where the disciples of Jesus and the followers of Jesus can come together why? To enjoy his presence, yes, but also really to absorb his teaching and to, and to start to work out some of the spiritual formation that he has for us. Like, it should be that the church is a place where you are wanting to encourage each other to uh, try something new. Like, I don't spend much time in silence and solitude. I got my phone. Like, I'm never bored and never quiet. I'm like to try to encourage someone to do that. To come alongside and say, here's what I've learned. I, I feel like a, I don't know how to pray. Well, I'm not sure that I figured it all out, but I've, I've prayed some, let me help you. Like it's supposed to be a communal project. You're also supposed to know that it takes a long time. Like discipleship wasn't a day. It wasn't like, wanna be my follower? Well, 90 days to the best you and you'll be done. Like, that's not how it worked. And I know that all of our fitness programs are based off of that, like, you know, four weeks to shred, and then you're done. But real life change doesn't happen. We live, I get it, in a very instant culture. I know there's Amazon Prime. I know there's microwaves. I know there's FedEx overnight. But you're not going to microwave character. I don't know if you know this. 
But you're not FedExing overnight Christ-likeness. That takes time. You have to be with Jesus a lot. You have, you have to practice his practices a lot for that to grow in you over the course of time. And let's be okay with that. Let's be okay with not expecting somebody to be like at the spiritual mountaintop all the time or have figured everything out the day after they're saved or even 20 years after they're saved. The best word, I love this word for thinking about discipleship and following Jesus, perhaps for us and our culture would be apprenticeship. Because when you think apprentice, you immediately think like you're going to learn something and you're going to do something, right? And you immediately know what the goal of apprenticeship is. So raise of hands, how many of you have ever apprenticed? Maybe you've done a carpentry apprenticeship or an electrician apprenticeship or a plumber apprenticeship. Raise of hands. All right, I see one, two, three. Oh, man, quite a few of you, okay? We got some people that have done some, some trades, okay, right? Uh, or uh, maybe even in a medical context, you've done some of that. You all know what the end goal of apprenticeship is. Everybody knows that they're going to learn something and they're going to do some things all under the supervision of maybe the master electrician or the journeyman. I'm not entirely sure how that works. But the goal is not that they know a lot about electricity. The goal is that they can wire a house. Right? The goal is that they can plumb a house. And when you think about apprenticeship, it's a great way to look at it of like, hey, I'm following, I'm apprenticing under Jesus. I'm going to learn some things. I'm also going to do some things. And I may not be great at all of the things that I do, and I'm okay with that. It's, it's a journey. It's a walk. But I'm doing this so that I cannot just know stuff. I'm doing this so that I can do the mission of Jesus, so that I can actually be reconciling other people to God. I can be his ambassador in the world. That's the goal. But know that it takes a long time. Know that it happens in community. But here's, here's the last two things you need to know. Number one is the things that we do do something to us. This is important. I've given you a lot that's important today, but this is important. Whatever your habits are, we'll call them practices, okay? And you all have practices. You have wake-up routines. You have go-to-bed routines. You have drive-to-work commute routines. You have things that trigger you that you do this, you know. When I walk into the gas station, I've, I always, you know, buy this or get this. Like you have, those exist in your life. And whatever you do, it does something to you. So generally speaking, the more that you do something, the more you're going to want to do it. And the easier it will become to do again. So the more that you shop, the more that you want to shop. Some of you all, like your budget has figured this out the hard way, right? You're like, I'm going to fill my closet. I'm going to get all these deals. But you, f you, found, you found those deals on clearance. They were too good. You couldn't pass it up. I mean, you would have been giving up money to pass up that. It was 75% off, right? But guess what? You wanted to shop again. And then you wanted to shop again. It's not like, oh, I got enough clothes. I'm done. No, the more you shop, the more you want to shop. The more you eat, the more you want to eat. If you, have, if you have Thanksgiving meal, you may be satiated for a little bit, but guess what? Your stomach expands and the next day you want to eat more and you want to eat more. It's not like I just want to eat less. That, that desire grows. This can happen in very negative ways that the more you drink, the more you want to drink or the more you look at pornography, the more you want to look at pornography, the more that you uh, 
imbibe or smoke that, the more you want to imbibe and smoke that again, like that can happen in very negative ways. That can also happen in very positive ways. That it may not be the easiest to get up and to start a prayer life and to give 10 minutes and commune with God and get on your knees in the morning, but the more that you do that, the easier that will become. The more that you are generous, the easier that will be to be a habit that is formed in you that you can be generous over and over and again. What you do does something to you. And this is so important because we live in a secular and a spiritual culture where we basically have taken our hands off the wheel and acted like we don't have anything to do with this. And it, I don't want to get on my soapbox, but it annoys the fire out of me. Like secularly, anything that's negative in our life, we, we play the blame game real easy. And everybody points the fingers. It's not my fault. It's mom's fault. It's dad's fault. I didn't have an environment of affirmation enough. I didn't have an environment of discipline enough. I didn't, I didn't live in a good neighborhood. We didn't have enough money. I didn't go to a good school. So anything negative in my life, I blame shift off onto somebody else. Anything positive in my life, I definitely take credit for because I'm the stuff and I did it. And that's what we live in secularly. Spiritually, though, many times we live in the same, like, environment. We swim in those waters. We have this cliche around churches many times. It's the let go and let God cliche, which can be really helpful for salvation when it's like let go of your sin and just let God save you. Like, I, I, I could see the connection there, but it's really bad for our sanctification. Because guess what? You're not just going to pray and say, God, make me a person of mercy and make me a person of character. Make me a person of deep prayer. I'm letting go and letting you. And then it's just going to happen. Ta-da. Your character changed. Boom. Sorry, not going to happen. You say, you don't have enough faith. Mm. I'm, I'm pretty sure the Bible says as much. Like we have this idea that somehow we can just pray something and just let go and God will, God will produce it. But guess what? It takes some intelligence, it takes some actions, it takes some habits. So if you want to develop, let's say, a habit of praying every morning, I don't mean to cherry pick that one today, but it's worked as a great one. And you're not a morning person. You cannot stay up till midnight binging Netflix Go to bed at 12.01 and say, God, I'm letting go and letting you multiply my sleep, turn these six hours into eight, pretty please. And somehow you're gonna wake up at 6 a.m. and you're just gonna be refreshed and you will just want to pray. It don't work that way. You understand that? Like don't over-spiritualize this and think that somehow that's what you need to do. You need to go to bed earlier, Right? That's what you need to do. You need to go to bed earlier so then when you wake up, you're not as tired. And even then, if you're not a morning person, you're probably gonna wake up and be tired. So I wouldn't recommend praying on your knees next to your bed or prostrate. You're gonna fall asleep. I would walk, I would talk, I would like go outside with some fresh air and do a prayer walk. Like you, you have to work it out, right? But you choose, like what you do does something to you. You have a profound impact on what you love, including if you love the things of God. The whole idea of seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness was the idea of seeking and pursuing and pushing and working. 
You have to seek that. You have to work at that. Don't, do not give me a, all my loves are of none of my choice. You know, Cupid's arrow struck me and that's how love came to be. I'm sorry, it doesn't go that way. There's, there's a measure of truth to some of that, but by and large, the things that you love are because you have done them over and over and over and over again and you've instilled them into your lives. And sometimes we think that we can't do that spiritually. Like, you know what, I just don't like fasting. Well, neither do I. No one does. It, does, it gets easier, but you, you have to work it out. I've, I'm, I need to shut up. Last one. Am I allowed to say shut up? I did, sorry. If, if that offends you or like you have a kid in the room and you teach your kid not to say shut up, I apologize. Train harder, don't try harder. You say, didn't you just say you had to put forth effort? Yeah. Isn't that contradictory? No. You want to put forth effort, but you want to put it in the right place. And there's such a space for like spiritual disciplines, practicing the practices. And, and looking at it as training, looking at it as I'm not great at this and it's going to be uncomfortable, but I'm going to grow and it's going to be good for me. And if you will train, you'll get better at it. For example, my, my kids, they're not all in piano lessons yet, but I have four kids, as most of you know, and the two oldest are in piano lessons. They are now in fourth grade and second grade, but they started last year. And it was cool to see them go to their little recital uh, in the spring and actually play like their, their little pieces or whatever. But they're trying to learn the piano, you know, and they're, they're training. They have practice every week, and then at home they have a few minutes every night where they have to practice the piano at, at home every night. But if I went to the music store this week and I bought the, the, the sheet music for Beethoven Symphony Number no. 5, and I took it home and I put it in front of Brennan on the piano, and I said, Brennan, play Beethoven Symphony Number no. 5. I'm telling you right now, he can try as hard as he wants. Maximum effort, 110%. Every bit of his brain power, every bit of the mechanics in his hand, he can try his hardest, but he's not playing Beethoven Symphony. We get that? But if he will train hard, if he will practice and practice and practice and practice and practice some more, and for years keep on practicing harder, not try harder, but practice hard, train hard eventually there will be a day not where playing Beethoven will be easy. It'll never be easy. But where playing Beethoven is something that is within his capabilities. There will come a day if he trains hard that he'll be able to do that, right? And spiritually sometimes we miss this idea that we have to train hard. That there are certain like habits spiritually that form us that we have to do redundantly over a long period of time to actually form Christ-likeness and character in us or even the capacity of God using us to do something. I think there's a great example of this. People debate what it means, but here's what I think it means. There's this moment in the Gospels where Jesus hasn't commissioned his disciples officially, but he's doing like many commissions. He's sending them out on short-term uh, missions to go do something or teach something. And he sends them out and they, and they come back and there's this demon-possessed person and they can't cast out the demon. And they've seen Jesus do this. 
And they're like, we've been, we've been with Jesus and we're trying to become like Jesus. So now we want to do as he did. You know, we want to cast out these demons. And they're like, Jesus, we tried our hardest and we couldn't do it. And Jesus says to them, this kind doesn't come but by prayer and fasting, guys. Now, what is he saying there? I'll tell you what I think he's saying. I think he's saying, you know what? You're trying to play Beethoven's fifth, but you're still at chopsticks. You got to pray some more, and you got to fast some more, and you got to train some more, and, and, and work some more, and eventually this will be within your capacity, but it's just, it's just not right now. You have to spend more time with me, and you have to be like me, and you, ha- you have to train a little harder. So the overall point is this. There's such a space, I think, for us to understand what we should be practicing. Let's start there. But then try our best to work it out. And my challenge to you is a simple. Number one, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I would invite you to be a follower of Jesus today. And it's not my invite. It's his invite. Jesus has an open invitation. He will take you on. You can follow him. You can apprentice under him. You you can walk with him. Like that is for you. And if if you would say, I'm not a follower of Jesus. If you have questions, you're working it out, that's fine. I understand that. We're happy to be patient and answer questions. But I would invite you to be a follower. But for the majority of you in this room, I know you are a follower. And I would encourage you to start to think about what would this mean to start to implement this in my life? And my challenge to you is this simple. Start over the next couple weeks to write down, or maybe not write down, at least mentally journal, do do an audit of the habits that you have. Because you have lots of them. And try to connect the dots to what they do to you. Try to connect the dots to what it does when you turn on Fox News for two hours, and you just stare at it. And the more you watch Fox News, you want to you watch Fox News more. That's how it works. How does, that, how does that work? And see if you can't identify some habits that would be prime candidates to remove them and to put in their place something that is a spiritual discipline or a practice of Jesus. And if you can start the work right now of trying to identify, okay, on my commute to work, all I do is listen to talk radio. It's, it's not bad, but it's not that helpful. If I could put some audio Bible on my way to work, that may start to form me over the course of time. Like there's, you, you know your life, okay? But do an audit over the next couple of weeks and pay attention to those habits and those rhythms and those routines you have and see if you can start to find some. Because I'm gonna challenge you as we get further down the road to start to take some out and put some in and see how that starts to change and shape your life as we move through it.